0: and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Candela Marini, your host, and today we'll be talking to Ashley Kerr about her book Sex, Skulls, and Citizens, Gender and Racial Science in Argentina, 1860-1910, to published by Vanderbilt University Press just this year, 2020. So welcome, Ashley Kerr, and thank you so much for accepting our invitation and being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So you're a professor of Spanish in the Department of Modern Languages and Cultures at the University of Idaho. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, where you were born, where you went to school, and mainly how you became interested in Latin American studies, and Argentina in particular.
1: Absolutely. Um, So I do live in Idaho now at the University of Idaho, but I actually grew up up and down the East Coast and never even thought I would visit Idaho, nevertheless live here. Um, I went to Middlebury College and thought I was going to be a biology major. And then we had our first lab and we were counting little uh, water bugs or something in a stream in like October in Vermont. And I decided that lab science was definitely not for me. Um, And I'd always loved Spanish and I loved the flexibility of the Latin American studies program. Um, So I started working on that. I studied abroad in Chile for a year. And then after I graduated, I got a Fulbright English teaching assistantship to Argentina. Um, And of course, that's where my love of Argentina and interest of Argentina, um, interest in Argentina came from. So, um, yeah, so it was a really great experience. Uh, The Fulbright English teaching assistantship is interesting because you apply to the country, but then they can send you wherever they want or they need you in the country. Um, So I got sent to Caleto, Libia, which is a very, very tiny um, oil drilling town in Patagonia and not on the glaciers tourism side of Patagonia, but the very arid coastal side. Um, And that's sort of where I got interested in in my topic. Um, Living in the province of Santa Cruz and hearing both this narrative of Argentine whiteness and being a nation of immigrants and then also hearing and seeing the um, Tehuolchi communities that were all around me got me thinking kind of, well, what what happened here? Um, and then at the same time, I was there in 2007, and there were these massive teacher protests going on in the province, and schools were mm-hmm. mostly closed, so I wasn't actually doing much of the work I was there to do. Um, and so I started reading. And, of course, all of the texts, or a lot of the texts of the 19th century, um, you know, Moreno and Lista, and all of the ones I look at in this book were were set where they were exploring the area that I was living in. So that got me starting to ask a lot of
0: questions. That must have been an amazing experience. Um, before we delve like, deeper into your book, I was wondering if you could give uh, our listeners a short overview of what gender and racial science is. This is the subtitle of your book. And uh, what it looked like uh, in the second half of the 19th century. What were some of the main debates or theorists in the time?
1: That's a great question. Um, So the late 19th century, the period that I'm looking at in Argentina and really across Latin America, and I would argue in the United States as well, um, is really a period of trying to figure out the physical, biological, and cultural borders of the nation. So what is Argentina? Who is Argentina? Where is Argentina? And in the ideology of the time that was focused on progress, um, that had obviously very Eurocentric views... A lot of those borders or the way that they want to present them have to do with whiteness. So in the case of of Argentina, we've got a couple different pieces going together at once. There are military movements to try to fix the borders of the nation, stop um, the Malones, the indigenous raids, things like that. There is also this cultural action to try to prove to the world that they are European. They are not indigenous. um, And we see that in World's Fair expositions, books, things like that. And there's this scientific piece that's really important to both of those. Um, and it's not coincidence that the rise of racial science in Argentina happens in pretty much the exact same period that we see some of the most intense military actions against Indigenous communities. So worldwide, um, some of the major questions at the time that, that science of race or racial science is trying to answer are, um, where do people come from? Are all humans part of one single species? Or are there different species that correspond to the different races? How many races are there? And Of course, now we look at some of these questions and go, wow, those are really racist. Um, But of course, at that time, they're working within this particular framework. Um, How do races change over time? um, Is it evolution? So we start to see Darwinism. We start to see talk of degeneration different mechanisms of racial change, questions of hybridity. Um, So can the different races actually reproduce together or not? Um, How do we define a race? Things like that. And Argentina picks up on all of this um, and not in a we're just going to copy Europe sort of way. But these debates are really useful to them as they're trying to fix the borders of the nation and create this sort of white identity. Um, And so... In Argentina, you start to see men like um, Lucio Bimancilla, Francisco Moreno, Ramon Lista, Avajos, um, and non-Argentines like George Chaworth Musters from England or um, Guillermo Cox from Chile that are then exploring the Argentine territory, and it's particularly the central Pampas and the Patagonian region at this time. Um, interest in the north happens a couple of decades later. And they're starting to physically explore the territory in order to um, help with some of these military campaigns, to study the indigenous inhabitants and use their observations in these evolutionary frameworks to cast them as inferior, to justify some of the military actions. And then an important part in Argentina is that these racial scientists, um, who again are not going to fit any sort of um, definition that we have today of maybe what an anthropologist or an ethnographer does. These are all very much categories in flux. Um, They're all writing fiction as well. And they're all also politicians, which I think is a really important point in the case of Argentina. Um, So several of them, including Sebastios and Mancia, go on to be national deputies. Uh, Lista is governor of the province of Santa Cruz at one point. They're provincial representatives. They're also paid to write treaties and make books for the government, to explore for the government. Um, and at the same time, they actually ask some of these military leaders, like Roca, to task their men with collecting skulls and bones and other artifacts while they're actually out on their expeditions and bringing them back to further science. So there's really um, a very strong inter- interconnected web between science, ideas of race, politics, and military action in Argentina at this time. Um, and you also asked about gender. So this is the part that got me interested in the topic of my book, um, which is that for my dissertation, I really wrote more about um, this idea of using racial science to create this white identity um, and focused on the men. And then once I started my position here at the University of Idaho, um, I had a, a kid a year later and was looking back at some of these texts and some of these pictures, and I think because I was a new mother at that time, actually, um, it made me start looking at some of the pictures and going, hey, there are mothers here. There are children here. Wait, there are women here. What's going on? I've not heard about any of these women in any of this that I've been studying. And so I started to think a little bit more um, about gender in general and looking for women in some of these texts, some of these photographs, and some of these archives. So um, at the time, we see a lot of. Um, similar ideas of gender to what we see um, in other parts of um, Latin America. We see men being sort of this public facing figure in general, um, women particularly as mothers, men as working, being good citizens, being useful, things like that. Um, And of course, that then leads to this emphasis on who were the male actors at the time. So I wanted to flip that on its head and start thinking about who were the women involved? So who were the women that were interviewed by them? Who were the indigenous women studied by them? Were women writing about any of these ideas? Were there women that helped them? Were there women that impeded some of their projects? Um, were there both real women or also these literary women, right? So are they imagining, about, are they imagining sort of this Argentine woman and who she would be? Um, and that's sort of how I got to, to this book.
0: So nice how your personal experience made you like look, go back to these materials and images and see them in a under a new light. I Um, wasn't expecting that. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, in your introduction, you also say that um, there's a lot of research that's uh, been going on in the last decades uh, about these issues. But as you were saying, uh, gender differences are still. Quite largely ignored, but not only that, uh, and I here quote you you say that these interventions, these recent interventions, have been fruitful and necessary, but they have muted some of the complexity of the period. I was wondering if you could expand on that. Uh, What do you mean by that?
1: Absolutely. Um, So, what we've seen historically in the literature looking at the second half of the 19th century in Argentina is a shift. The original text, looking at the period, if we go back to the 1950s, um, 1960s, 1970s even, we see this narrative that the scientists like Moreno, like Mansilla, like um, all of them really, were, were heroes, and Roca, who led the conquista del desierto, these military campaigns in the south, as a hero, who tamed the savages, made Argentina what it is today, Um, We see people naming streets after them, buildings, schools, things like that. Then once you start to get into, um, I would argue, probably the 80s, 90s, and and later, there's a shift towards the scientists and politicians of the era were horrific racists, and Indigenous communities were their victims. And to be clear, this is absolutely a good shift, and it's a position that I agree with. Um, If you read the text, it's absolutely shocking some of the things that they're saying, believing, and doing, Um, and the number of people, indigenous people, who are affected by these actions. So when I talk about bringing complexity back to the period, it's not so I can defend these white guys um, and say, oh, really, really, they weren't so bad. Um, For me, it's actually, I think, probably about maybe three different things that we could acknowledge. Let me see if I can kind of piece this out. So first, I think it's important that when we acknowledge that all indigenous communities were victims of this racism and that it was horrific and likely genocide, um, not all indiv- indigenous individuals had the same experience. So due to their gender, um, their status within the, the group, whether they were caciques or, or not, um, personal connections, right? Had they met any of these scientists before? Some had access to places or protections that others didn't. Um, And we can see that very clearly in something that comes up in my book in the way that the historical record has remembered many of these indigenous people. We know many, many more men's names than women's names, right? Mm -hmm. So if we look at both the text from the 19th century and the push for um, return of remains in the present, it's mostly focused on these men's stories, I want to remember and honor that diversity of experience and, and know that, yeah, even within these communities, even under oppressive conditions, people did have different levels of ability to act or um, may have experienced things in different ways. And so then as a follow up to that, while Indigenous communities did have less power, and again, I can't reiterate this enough, were the victims of terrible state policies and individual actions, We have to be really careful that in rightfully presenting them as victims, we don't re-render them completely passive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I mean by that is that we have to be really careful when we call them victims, that we don't assume that they did nothing to try to resist, right? Um, And they absolutely did. And that's a theme that goes throughout my book. There are numerous points where Indigenous men, and particularly women, um, said things, did things, acted in ways to try to make space for themselves and their communities within these terrible conditions. Um, And then I guess I said, I had three points with that. And I think my last one is, Mm -hmm. um, I think it can be a dangerous position to say that all non-indigenous Argentines of the period were racists because it's an an easy way to excuse behavior. And so we see this all the time here in the US when we talk about slavery, or um, Columbus's actions in the Americas, or the Conquistadores, when you point out the horrors of slavery or the genocide of indigenous communities, there was always somebody that's really quick to say, well, everyone thought that way back then. They didn't know any better, right? We couldn't have expected them to do anything else because that's just the way people thought. But I think that in any historical moment, if we look closely enough, we're likely to find people of the era who did know better, and who did speak up, and who did take a different stance, right? And so that's absolutely the case, obviously, for the oppressed, for the indigenous communities, for the enslaved people. But I think it's also the case for, in in this period I'm studying, for Creole Argentines. So I found numerous examples of non-indigenous Argentines who spoke out against both Argentine-Indian policy and science in the era. I mean, there were people that were accusing Moreno of literally cutting up men and women in the name of science. And, um, and they were very passionate about how wrong he was with that. So I think that's what I mean when I talk about bringing back some of this complexity, right? Not, um, not upending this basic knowledge that I think is really important and still not as well known as it should be, that science was complicit in these racist policies, but looking at the ways that different individuals might have been able to act or had different experiences. Um, based on who they were.
0: Right, and being careful that by not simplifying the narrative so that, because by simplifying, you're are like minimizing the violence of the period.
1: Yeah, and we we're um, creating a lot of the patterns, yeah. right? That we saw in the 19th right. century.
0: yeah. Um, so you started your book discussing some of the classic sects of Argentine anthropology, and um, you find a number of common tropes and images that were used to justify white Creole intervention or rather dominance over indigenous bodies and territories. Um, could you tell us what were some of these images, uh, most of which were actually related to sexuality, right, and gender roles within the family, larger community, and the national community, the ideal national communities? Um, And if you find any contradictions within those images and narratives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the things that fascinated me when I went back to these classic texts, and again, I'm talking about um, Excursión a los Indios Ranqueles de Mancilla, all of Ceballos' books, um, Morenos, Viaje a la Patagonia Austral, um, and then again, some of these other texts like Cox and Musters, right, people from outside of Argentina that were exploring Argentina is um, when I went back at it and looked at it at these texts through the lens of gender, I saw just how frequently justification of indigenous people's barbarism or ways of excluding them from the nation were based on gender. Now, this wasn't the only way that they were thinking about this, obviously. There's um, a huge territorial element of this, a property element. Um, But what i found is that when they speak about indigenous men, they are paradoxically either always too masculine or not masculine enough. And in both cases, this sort of failed masculinity is harmful to women and particularly white women. So in the first case, the too masculine, we see this in repeated fears um, about the rape of white women, right? So in both Mansisha and Cevachos, we see examples of um, there are cautivas in, in the indigenous uh, camps. They see them, they talk about how they were virgins and mothers who have been horrifically um, taken from their families, taken from their communities, and are being corrupted, raped, treated terribly um, in these Tolderias, in the indigenous encampments, right? And so this is the men is too masculine, it's too sexual. It's often expressed in dehumanizing animal language. Um, they're compared to wolves that are stalking their prey or hurricanes with sort of irrational erotic passion. Um, it's really incredible when you read some of this and more incredible to me was when I started to do a little bit more research, finding that this is not actually necessarily the case. So to be clear, women were absolutely taken captive, um by some of these indigenous communities. I'm not going to deny that. And some of them were absolutely raped, I'm sure. But the numbers actually are a lot lower than what you would expect reading some of these texts. Um, And we can see this particularly in Zavashos. It's really interesting. He writes this fictional trilogy that I talk about in a couple of places in the book. And his fictional trilogy lifts entire passages from two works by Santiago uh, Santiago Avedano, who was actually taken captive. He was an Argentine man, non-Indigenous, taken captive. And Savayos' books are basically a rewriting in fiction of, of these texts. But where Avedano directly refutes the idea of Indigenous rape of white women in his work, Zavaychos so actually emphasizes that in his work. So we can see how he's sticking very close to these texts, except when it comes to talking about masculinity and sexuality. Right? Um, and I think in a lot of ways, this focusing on indigenous man as sort of lustful rapist is a way of alighting the fact that some white women actually did want to be with an indig- indigenous men and might have voluntarily chosen it. At the same time, Indigenous men are also represented as not masculine enough. And when I say that, what I mean is they don't work in the ways that these Argentine scientists are expecting men, particularly men of the lower classes, to work. Um, as a consequence, what they point out is because Indigenous men don't work, and again, this is their representation of it, Indigenous men did do work, uh, they make women work instead. and So again, we see how this sort of failed masculinity has this correlation where it hurts women, this case, indigenous women, right? Um, But again, I do think this is an oversimplification and reflects these sort of different ideas of work and patterns of what it means to be a man. Um, Hunting was cyclical. They may have been there in periods where it wasn't happening as much. Um, Miguel Angel Palermo, Florencia Roulette have shown that some of the women actually gained quite a bit of power in their communities through this work. Um, And so it wasn't the sort of enslavement from barbarism that the men are making it out to be. Um, And so I found this really fascinating to see these these tropes and how they're used kind of over and over again, but in ways that are conflicting both within the texts and then also between some of the texts. And in in the case of the, the sort of too sexual, too masculine Argentine indigenous male, This is something that I see very particular to the Americas. Um, If you read some of the texts of racial science, if you read Lubbock, um, if you read any of the texts that are coming out of Europe at the time, they don't mention that part of it at all. If they talk about sexuality, they're talking about marriage practices within Indigenous communities. They're not talking about conflict between Indigenous communities and non-Indigenous communities through sexuality. But we do see that when we compare Argentina to the United States, which I think is an interesting difference as well.
0: So in the United States, you do see the same kind of sexual threat as in Argentina?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we absolutely see that expressed in a, lot of the, um, in a lot of the texts from the United States at the same time. And I don't know if this is a good point to bring this up, but I think this comparison, we've already mentioned it, I've already mentioned it twice, to the U.S. is really important. Um, both to me in my position as a scholar and to understanding what's going on. So one of the things that I found that I thought was really interesting is that while they generally look to Europe for their scientific connections, so the scholars that they're citing, the the scientists that they're citing are mostly European. There's really not much of a connection to the United States at all. When they talk about policy, they look towards the United States. And so this is something... um, I talk about in my chapter, in chapter one, that they actually, um, are using these gendered ideas and tropes to make policy at the same time. And they're doing this in part through the United States. So, um, Roca actually sends a military attache to the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. And that's Miguel Malarín. And Malarín spends several months in the United States and writes back, um, reporting on what the United States is doing to get rid of its, and again, this is sarcastic and in quotation marks, Indian problem um, and how Argentina might apply some of those ideas. And he's very much looking at it through a gendered lens. Um, This is absolutely horrific, but he looks at the Trail of Tears in the United States and says, hey, that was effective. It was slow, but it made women have miscarriages and so you didn't have the next generation of indigenous children. Um, He looks at the U.S. and says, hey, maybe some boarding schools would be a great idea. We can separate these little indigenous children from their parents, and we can re-educate them. And so there's this constant looking towards the U.S. and not copying exactly, because, of course, the uh, the context is different to a certain extent. But I found it over and over again, and I'm sure it'll come up again later in this interview. Um, And so, yeah, Argentina, absolutely, when they decide what they're going to do with some of this information, falls back once again on ideas of gender. So um, Enrique Gomasis has a really good book where he talks about what some of this policy was. And what is clear when you look at it through the gendered lens is that the ways that they divided up these indigenous men, women, and children once they were subdued by the military were not just practical and economic, but also gendered, right? So you send indigenous men to be integrated into the army and to the navy and to work on plantations. Well that's one way of taking care of labor shortages, that's one way of sort of educating them in work and discipline, which of course they were viewing indigenous men as lacking. But it's also a really good way to impede reproduction and the creation of future indigenous children. right? Um, men are in barracks those are exclusively masculine spaces plantations they were largely separated from their families and working there again amongst men women then get sent to work as domestic help right to be trained in good argentine femininity what they should be doing and then children were separated from their mothers again to be sort of re-educated and along gendered lines Um, and this is really one of the parts that i found interesting when talking about this idea of complexity of the period is that If we look at newspaper articles from the time period, people are okay with these policies at first, until they start to realize that children are being separated from their mothers. And then we see the shift in the newspaper articles to a critique, actually, of this policy, saying, whoa, 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 while we think this might be a good idea sort of racially to kind of whiten the nation, this goes against everything we think about motherhood. And therefore, we cannot commit the sin of separating mothers from their children. And so there start to be some very slight reforms to the system. So here, I think, is a really good example of how ideas about gender, which many of which come through Catholicism at this point, ideas about gender actually sort of put the brakes on policies that were maybe recommended by this scientific racism um, and, and some of the thought processes from the time period.
0: Um, and in chapter two, you turn your gaze around and instead of uh, examining white men's interpretations of indigenous sexuality, you actually examine the scientist's own re- relationship to desire. Um, what did you find here and how did these experiences, these sexual relationships impact their own work and their political views? Yeah,
1: so this chapter I found really fascinating to work on. Um, One of the things I had noticed when I reread Mancilla on the excursion is this figure of Carmen. So it's a Ranquel woman who he calls his comadre that is there. He says in the very beginning that she's been sent by Mariano Rosas to trick him and to be a spy and report back on his actions. And yet throughout the rest of the text, he takes everything she says about her culture and the cultures around her as accurate information that he can use for his ethnography he trusts her and he views himself as having um brought her around to his side and all of this is narrated in very sexual language so he narrates several instances where he thinks carmen is coming on to him he talks about other indigenous women as being very beautiful um desirable and he does so in language that's quite sexual and so i was looking at this going what is going on here and so I think in the case of Mansilla, um, there are two sort of contradictory things happening. So first, I think he definitely is, um, if you've read the book, and I know you have, um, one of the things that he's arguing for in the excursion is the unity of the human species. So bringing it back to this worldwide debate over whether all races, all people belong to one species or were actually different species. Um, and one of the ways that people were using to make this, this determination was whether two people of different races, if they had a child, if their child was fertile or not, which is what the um, classification was used for how they were doing it amongst animals at the time. And so I think, in part, Mansisha is using desire as a way of bringing the races together to support his thesis that all humans are part of one species. And we see frequently throughout the text that he actually allies himself with indigenous men against sort of tricky women worldwide. Um, Mm. So his misogyny is maybe greater than his racism at that (laughs) point, I guess we could say. Um, And so he's talking about how, um, you know, women everywhere are the same. They're emotional. They try to trick us. They try to do these things. Men everywhere have to suffer this. Um, Love is the same everywhere. He talks about some. Uh, parallels in language between French and Aroganian, um, particularly while talking about love and sex, which I think is interesting. Um, and I think his own expressions of desire are a way of showing that there is unity in the human species. If I can find an indigenous woman attractive um, and I can kind of float the specter of sex and reproduction. And he actually has a dream that he's made Carmen her, his empress and he is the emperor. Um, then we're all one human species. But then the other thing that always blew my mind with Mansilla is how much he changes his opinion later. So 1870 in the excursion, he's talking all about how we're all one species. You know, we should be, people always look at it as sort of the, the nice book of the 19th century, right? Where he's saying like, oh yeah, maybe we should be nicer to, to the Ranqueles. Um, but 15 years later, he's in front of the Argentine National Congress and his role is as a, a senator saying, no, Indigenous communities can absolutely, for anthropological and racial reasons, not be integrated into the community. And any attempt to do so, throwing any money at it, is an absolute waste of time. And so I've always looked at this going, what happened? Right? What happened between 1870 and 1885 or whenever it was he was making these comments? And I think we can actually find some of that answer by looking back at this question of desire. I think in the excursion, the desire is always rhetorical. It's always this way of playing Indian, right, to use Deloria's term, of kind of putting it on. Um, It's really important to remember that although he talks about desire throughout and he expresses desire, it is absolutely never consummated in the text, right? Every time that he's expressing something, so there's one moment, for instance, um, where he's talking about sort of desire for one of these women, I think it's for Carmen specifically, but then the next line, he reminds us that he had asked the priest to sleep at the foot of his bed in the same room as him. Um, or there's another time where he goes out to meet Carmen and he talks about making sure that he brought a soldier with him. And he claims it's because he's afraid of dogs, which he's written about in other parts of the text. But it's also a really convenient chaperone to have with him, right? To make us know as readers that, no, no, nothing actually ever happened. And so I see this as sort of this trying on of, of this identity. Um, while he's in the Toldos, And again, his excursion lasts 18 days. When you read this text, you think it's gone on for a long time. You spent significant time, but it's 18 days. Um, so I started with Mansisha and looking at this. And then I found a real life example in the case of Ramon Lista. And so Lista um, is another explorer scientist who became governor of the province of Santa Cruz, which is again way down in Patagonia. Um, And while he was governor there, he begins a relationship with a Tehuelche woman named Florinda Coyle. Um, And they have a child together. Around the same time that he has a child, who is given the name Ramona Cecilia Lista, his (laughs) his real wife, his wife he is married to, Agustina Andrade, the poet, dies by suicide. And at that point, Lista goes back to Buenos Aires and gives up his governorship. It's unclear exactly what happened there. Um, The sort of general wisdom is that he was brought back to avoid scandal. Um, Some of his defenders say that he was actually quite ill, and so that's why he went back. It's also unclear whether he gave his daughter um, his name, if he authorized this use of Ramona Lista, or if he was actually already back in Buenos Aires um, when she was born and given the But what I think is interesting here beyond sort of all of these questions about what the relationship looked like, whether it was actually consensual, what was going on, is that there's a clear contrast in Lista's scientific works before and after this period. So if we look at his texts from before, he talks about how the Tehuelches have no music that's worth writing about. They have no religion. They have no poetry. They have no abstract thought, all of the sort of standard tropes um, used to define and to defend the inferiority of indigenous people,
0: right?
1: um, He talks about how all indigenous communities are destined to die out. He himself participated in military actions and authorized the killing of over 20 Selknam when he was exploring. Um, really sort of the standard stereotypical um, racist language and actions that we see in a lot of these texts. Then there's a period where he doesn't publish, which corresponds to when he was governor and when he is spending time in the Toldos with um, Florinda. And then afterwards, if we look at his text, particularly his um, Los Indios de Huelches, Una Raza Que Desaparece, we see a very different vision. So whereas before he said they had no culture, basically, now he talks all about their music, their religion. He gives a glossary. He returns to all of the things that he dismissed before and gives us a lot more information and places a lot more value on. He doesn't depart from the idea that they're destined to die out. He sticks with that, right? This vanishing Indian trope that we see in the U.S. we see across Latin America at the time. But now he very, very, very forcefully says that we as Argentines and Chileans, because he includes them as well, shouldn't hasten this disappearance. So he goes off in very strong language. About merchants, the military, politicians, and how they are all incredibly guilty for giving them alcohol, killing them. He talks about white men raping them. He says that the true savages are us, essentially, for what we're doing here, and that we should not be participating in these actions. Instead, he suggests two things. So he suggests that the route forward is actually racial mixing, and he uses the term um, refundición, right? So bringing metals together, I guess, the the sort of literal definition of that, he uses it over and over again, and says that racial mixing is the way forward. Um, And basically, to put it in really sort of vulgar terms, if we all have sex, we don't have to worry about indigenous people anymore, right? (laughs) Um, Which is mind boggling. And so then I have two questions that comes out of this, right? So the first is, what, how do we explain this change of heart? Was it actually the relationship that changed his scientific perspective? Or was he already, because he was already getting more sympathetic towards indigenous people, that permitted the relationship? And I don't know that we can answer that. Um, I do think clearly that the the more time that he spent there, right, having spent several months instead of several days, leads to this greater appreciation of Tehualche culture. Um, but I'm not sure that I can say anything definitive beyond that. But the other thing I find really interesting and this connects back to this discussion of of sort of these gendered tropes is that in Lista's position and in Mancisha's position and when we've seen things in other people like Sebaixos whenever anyone talks about racial mixture being okay it's always if it is a white man and an indigenous woman it is absolutely never the reverse and so I think this comes from a couple of different places So first, um, there were some older scientific ideas that still circulated that proposed that women were essentially the vessel, and it was the man that provided the material that created the child. Um, So if a indigenous woman is the vessel for a white man's child, then the child will be essentially white or non-indigenous. Obviously, in the case of Lista especially, it's his own experience, right? I mean, this is what he's done. Why not extrapolate that more widely? Um, I think gendered ideas of of strength and who has control, can a woman actually choose, could a white woman actually choose to be with an indigenous man? Mm, Maybe not in their ideas. Um, And then of course, there's the fact that if white men and indigenous women have children and we allow indigenous women sort of into this national culture in whatever way we're thinking about it, They're still able to be, even if they're accepted sort of racially, they're still able to be minimized due to gender, right? And an indigenous woman is still not going to be a citizen because she's still a woman. Whereas Mm -hmm. if we flip that on its head, um, indigenous men pose much more of a problem and a challenge to the status quo. So I think it's, um, there's a lot going on there, but I do think it's really fascinating how across these, and even in the women's texts that I look at, and we'll talk about in a little bit, there is always this focus on white men and indigenous women, and never the reverse.
0: And it's also worth uh, noticing, as you do, that um, Ramon Lista's change of heart is only in relation to Tehuelche people and not uh, indigenous people in general, yeah, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: He is very specific. And that's another thing I think that's important um, when we talk about complexity of the period. Because even someone like shows who is probably the most uh, openly racist of any of them, actually is willing to defend the Tehuelches after to a certain point, right? Not entirely, but they're definitely distinguishing between different communities when they're talking about incorporation.
0: Yeah, and then um, you then focus on another kind of intimate relations, and I think it, it is one that has gotten a lot of attention in the past decades, and it's the one that involves Francisco Moreno, the creation of the Mision de la Plata, and the captivity within the museum walls of a group of the that... Um, died in suspicious circumstances and that were then their remains were put on display as part of the museum collection for a very long time. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the story and, um, the photographs that you analyze here? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So for people that haven't heard this story before, and again, it's had a lot of press in Argentina, but I don't know that it's gone beyond there really. Um, so Moreno had explored Patagonia previously. Um, he had met many Tehuelche, um, people that are living there, some other communities as well. A few years later, he founds this Museo de la Plata Natural History Museum in La Plata, which is not terribly far from Buenos Aires. Um, and around that same time that he's starting the museum, it's really only being built. It's not even finished when this happens. Um, some of the members of the communities that he had met personally, particularly in Inacayel and Foyel's groups, are taken prisoner, essentially, by the Argentine government and brought to to Buenos Aires. And when indigenous people were brought to Buenos Aires, they were often there um, without anyone really knowing what to do with them. Nobody really wanted to be in charge. This is where we start to see this reparto, people being sent off to the plantations, the military, things like that. Um, But this is a really interesting case, because what happens is that Moreno says, hey, wait, I know them. And he tries to intercede on their behalf, and get them released from the barracks where they were being held. And here is where we start to see this sort of divergent um, narrative of what happened. So there's one narrative, which is Moreno's own narrative, that he went, they saw that they were living in terrible conditions, and out out of the goodness of his own heart, he um, intervened and brought a smaller group of them, because again, he doesn't bring all of them, it's a very small group, to live at his Museo de la Plata, where he would take care of them and protect them. The other more cynical reading of this moment, which again was given by people in the 19th century as well as people today, is that of course Moreno went and said, Hey, I've got some good scientific studies to do here, and therefore took the group to live at his museum. Um, And yeah, we know that they were asked questions by some of the workers at the museum. We know that they were asked to help build the museum. Like I said, it was still in construction. Um, And so they were asked to bring in metal bars. The women were given. materials for weaving and asked to weave things that would then be put on display in the museum. And then the most tragic part of this, of course, is that at least four of the group died while they were at the museum and Moreno then had their bodies cleaned and put on display until the mid 20th century. Um, And some of them have been um, returned to their communities now in the last couple of years through extensive legal processes, but many are still in the basement of the Museo de la Plata. Um, and so one of the things that, that Moreno did was actually arrange to have photographs taken of many uh, members of this group. And again, looking at this with the sort of gendered lens, and this is where I started this whole project, I went, well, wait a second, I've read a lot about what happens to Inkael, how he dies, Foyel, how he's sent back, but look at all these women and children here. I've not heard anything about them. And so I started to look at the photographs to see what was being told what I could tell about the women and their experiences based on what was kind of captured in this lens. Um, There are a couple of things that really stood out to me. First, men and women are depicted totally differently and in line with some of these gendered ideas and tropes that we saw in the written anthropological texts from the time period. So women are with children, men are never with children. The men stand alone, not touching each other. The women are all together, kind of this chusma, the masses, And we see this in the writing, how women are always described um, working together, brushing each other's hair, raising children together, whereas the men are sort of more individual. Um, And we also see it in line with ideas of assimilation and and who can be incorporated. So Moreno, when he takes um, them from the barracks to the museum, publishes a letter in one of the newspapers, and he argues that this group is different. Right, so it kind of goes back to, to Lista and what we were talking about with how you can kind of come around to supporting certain groups, but not all of them. And Moreno mm-hmm. says, no, this group helped me while I was there. These people are nice. The women picked strawberries for me. And they shouldn't be treated like some of the bad caciques that we've, we've also um, incorporated. Right? And so he really posits this idea of assimilation and how that could happen. And again, I think we see in the photographs evidence of that happening along gendered lines. So the men are wearing the clothes of typical peones or campesinos, um, suggesting that they could be incorporated outside of the home through work. Women are still dressed in traditional clothing, but they're depicted with um, Creole pots and pans and other instruments. They'll be assimilated through the domestic, the home, so clothes maybe don't matter as much. Um, We also see differences with other... um, Text at the time, they're not sexualized at all. Um, and so it's a really interesting group of photos. The other thing that I think some of these photos point to is again one of my kind of overarching threads of this book the idea that um, Indigenous people, even within this victimization, even within these really oppressive conditions, this horrific racism, did potentially have some moments of agency. So if we look particularly at the photographs of the women, Most of them are depicted still fully dressed, but there are several women who are photographed with their tops pulled down so you can see their breasts. And if we look specifically at which women are photographed like that, we see that they're the women from the lowest classes of the tribe. So none of the caciques' wives or children are depicted like that. It is largely uh, women who are listed without a name, indicating that they have no particular um, importance or relationship to the caciques or one woman who is identified as a servant of, of one of the caciques. And so I think we can see a point here where indigenous men probably, probably in a was able to possibly negotiate a little bit in terms of who would have to submit to this most repressive photography, right? We see that with some of the women as well. Um, not so much in the photographs, but in some of the memories of, the museum workers. So there's a museum worker in particular that writes about his experiences um, with these Tehuelche women and he's really frustrated. Um, So the the weaving materials that I mentioned that they give to the women so that they will weave uh, samples essentially of their work for the museum, the women actually take into the city and sell to people and then take the money and use it to buy cigarettes and alcohol and other supplies for the men of their family which um, is particularly ironic because one of the ways that the museum had been trying to force the men into working for them was by limiting their ration of cigarettes. So here I think we see a pretty good example of how women are really subverting this scientific project. Um, And again, they're not maybe not acting with full agency or on their own behalf, but I think it's really interesting. The other point that really drew my attention here is that the same uh, museum worker, when he writes about interviewing the women, Writes incredibly, um, he's incredibly frustrated because when he asks them the same question two days in a row, they never give him the same answer. It's right. so a different answer every day to the same question. And I think he views this as a moment of, oh, they're stupid. Oh, they don't know what they're doing. But I have to think from reading some of the other things, looking at some of these photographs, that there's a really good probability that these women are messing with him, right? That they're giving them different answers just to frustrate what he's trying to do. Um, and so I think it's really important to see, you know, I, I can't fill in all the blanks of these stories. I can't give you these women's full experience. There's nothing written down. I, in my position as a non-Indigenous woman from the United States, am not in the place to try to fill in the blanks and to try to understand maybe what their subjectivity was and what they were feeling. But I do think it's really important that we remember that there were men and women that were working against. were trying to resist some of these projects and that men and women had very different experiences that had very tangible results. For instance, the women, um, the vast majority are not named on the photographs. Um, At best, it might just say daughter of some male or wife of some male. And that's actually had long-term effects because in some of these movements now to um, have restitution of remains to return the indigenous remains that are in the basement of the museum to their communities, we've seen that there have actually been a lot more men returned than women, in part because without names, it's a lot harder to trace which communities they belong to, right? And it's also a lot harder to uh, create these sort of compelling narratives of why they should be.
0: Right, and you also show how this lack of information also allows for further erasures of their identity. Like, for instance, when you show how a photograph taken now in the museum of, I think it was Sayinanku's daughter... Was used later to illustrate um, an edition of Mansilla's *Una uh, excursión a los indios ranqueles, and where the photograph was supposed to be representing uh, Carmen, a totally different person. Right, absolutely, right. from
1: you know thousands of miles away, a uh, totally different community. And it's not just you know the 19th century that's reproducing this. The English translation from 1994 of Mansilla's text uses that same image and labels her Carmen. Right, and so this has very long-term effects.
0: And then in the final part of the book, in chapters four and five, you examine a very different kind of text, and this is our works of fiction. And you argue that they are practically equally important to the scientific debates, or rather to the popularity and acceptance of different scientific views and their associated policies. And you start with two long epic poems, uh, Juan Sorilla de San Martín's Tabaré and Eduardo Holmberg's Lintalel. Um, why these poems and how do they articulate the discourses surrounding race and gender?
1: Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, and in some ways, one of the stranger parts of my book, I guess, right? And that it really goes from more historical to more literary. But I think that's actually a reflection of the time. So one of the things that I noticed is that every single one of the men that I was studying in terms of the scientists also wrote fiction. So So writes his trilogy. Um we see um, Lista, he has a lost fictional work. Um, and then you have Holmberg, who is, of course, one of the introducers of Darwinism to Argentina that is writing this long poem. Um, and there are other examples from the time period as well. And So it's like, okay, I think we need to talk about fiction here, right? And so you get these two long poems, Tabaré, which is, of course, extremely canonical at this point, and then um, Bincalel. And what is fascinating to me is that, so so Tisha de San Martin was very anti Darwinism. He actually wrote an article about how much he disliked Darwin when Darwin died. Um, and I think his poem can be read, Tabaret can be read as sort of this pro-degeneration Christian view of how races change over time that defends an absolutely European white Christian identity for Uruguay. Um, Holmberg is writing Lincalel, his poem, at the same time. He is also talking about Darwin at the same time, and um, Sorisha de San Martín is actually in Buenos Aires when he's working on Tabaré. And then um, in Lincalel, he actually mentions Tabaré in the glossary and talks a little bit about that poem. Their their plots are so similar, it's incredible. So in both cases, we have um, a mestizo or a mestiza we have this sort of threat from an indigenous male or another community. They both end with deaths. They're both happening in the pre independence period. Um, they're very, very similar, which got me to thinking if maybe Holmberg's Dinkalel is actually the sort of Darwinist rebuttal to Sorisha de San Martin. Um, and you can kind of track a lot of these parallels, right? And so Hornberg's actually talking about mestizaje as a good thing. And Argentina is a mestizo nation. Um, while not uh, denying the fact that indigenous communities as sort of pure communities needed to be eliminated. Um, And again, like throughout my entire book, gender is really important here in Tabaré. Tabaré is obviously a male mestizo in Ninkalel, again named after the protagonist. It's a mestiza. Um, And so we can see this sort of um, gendered element to who gets to be incorporated and, and who doesn't. Who doesn't? And so I think um, in this chapter and then chapter five a little bit, it's important to remember that sex and romance really were essential to portraying racial mixing and change to this wide audience. These scientific texts can't have a huge impact on creating a national identity if no one's reading them. But this fiction is getting read. So Tabare is hugely popular. Lingalel is not. Uh, it nobody reads Lingalel either in the time <laughs> or now. But it was advertised in Caras y and so I think people did read it at least somewhat at the time um and then the other thing i think the sort of uh different outcomes for these two texts remind us is that what's scientifically more correct isn't necessarily what gets remembered right so homebody's understanding of the world and argentine history is somewhat closer to what we accept to be um, fact today so de san martin's is not doesn't have much connection to reality in a lot of ways but of course that's what gets remembered so narrative matters right and fiction matters
0: yeah exactly and then in chapter five you finally have the opportunity to move away from this um, man-dominated world and study instead of what some female voices have to say about these issues and you do this by analyzing the work of Eduardo Mancilla and Florence Dixie um, so what did you find here and how were they part of these debates actually?
1: Yeah, so this was, I really enjoyed writing this chapter, um, because like you said, I mean, even though I was focusing on women, the previous four chapters are really talking about men, right? And I finally found the opportunity to find what women were saying about this. And so Mansisha is the brother, or the sister, sorry, of, of Lucio, who we've mentioned in the past with his excursion. Her husband is Manuel Rafael Garcia, um who is a diplomat for Argentina. He has strong connections to um, Roca, to Miguel Malarín, the man that was sent to the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the United States. Um, Sebastia, she knows everybody. She's probably been reading most of those things. Um, And in this chapter, I look at two of her texts. So I look at Lucia Miranda, um, her text of captivity in the sort of foundational period of Argentina, um, which is fiction. And then I look at Recuerdos de Viaje from 1882, which reflects on her travels in the United States about 20 years prior during the Civil War. And so I find in um, Lucia Miranda, she's actually anticipating, because it's before most of these texts of racial science, a lot of the same ideas, including this idea that if we're going to mix, it should be an indigenous woman with a Spanish or Creole man, a lot of the imagery, um, some of these tropes of masculinity, And I think that helps us to see the ways in which these scientific texts are really grounded in cultural ideas, right? They're not, and we all know this, science is not purely objective. It doesn't exist outside of its cultural context. But I think Mancisha's work really makes that clear. Her later book, her travelogue, is really fascinating. Because while she doesn't mention Argentina by name, it's published in the context of Rocas Conquista del Desierto, um, and there's an obvious comparison to the way that the United States has treated indigenous people and Argentina is treating indigenous people. And she absolutely despises U.S. policy. She talks about how incredibly unfair it is, how people who work for the Bureau of Indian Affairs are only out to make themselves more wealthy and powerful, how the, um, the caciques in the United States are worthy of respect. And there's this comparison going on to um, what she does like and doesn't like in Argentina. And again, the sort of return to mestizaje is the more humane way of getting getting rid of indigenous communities. Um, And she focuses on this through the idea of motherhood and reproduction. Dixie is a really fascinating case, Florence Dixie. So she's actually a Scotswoman. She's not Argentine. But she travels to Patagonia. She publishes a travelogue called Across Patagonia. And then a few years later, publishes two children's novels, The Two Castaways and Anui, that are feminist rewritings of George Chaworth Muster's At Home with the Patagonians. She uses the same names, phrases, descriptions, and lifts entire paragraphs from his book, but inscribes it within a feminist context. And I don't think that that is, um, uh, what's the word in English? Uh, I don't know, out of time, right? I don't think I'm applying a a later idea of feminism to her. She actually writes another book about how women should take over parliament in England. Um, But she uses this language of friends and sisters um, between this uh, British girl, Topsy, and Anawi, this um, Aurocanian girl, as a way of questioning gender roles and showing equality across racial lines, that women everywhere are oppressed by men. It's sort of the inverse of... um, Mancisha's language of desire, right? Um, But then at the same time, it's part of this larger British imperial project because Topsy finds the Argentines to be absolutely horrific. Their actions are hateful. Um, She uses the same language the Argentines use to dismiss indigenous people to describe the Argentines and then contrasts that explicitly with the benevolent uh, sway of Queen Victoria, who is friend to all people, no matter their color, no matter where they live. Um, and so like Mansisha, we see this idea that women are gentler, better at colonization perhaps, but she doesn't inscribe it in the context of motherhood. She's actually talking about women as political leaders as opposed to women as being mothers um, and reproducing to create the new nation. So I think in this we see what I think is one of the central arguments of my book, that women were acting and they were everywhere. And women were informants to the scientists, women were sexual partners to the scientists, objects of desire, they were studied, measured, uh, photographed, they were resisting, tripping them up when they could, and they were writing. White women were writing and critiquing some of these projects and expressing or articulating alternative projects of colonization that don't break with the same hierarchies, but at least find ways to question. Them.
0: Um, we've taken a lot of your time, but before wrapping up, I wanted to mention the beautiful work you do recreating the social and personal and intellectual networks of the different authors you sti- study. You pay attention to their library collection, the works they cite, their pers- personal connections, and even like noticing that Florence Dixie and Ramon Lista hired the same cook. Right. Um, <laughs> so, could you tell us a little bit about how you work with the archive to? reconstruct these circuits and connections and why you thought it was important?
1: Yeah, so I think mostly it's just reading, 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 reading. Um, I go down all the rabbit holes, right? When you see something, you start to follow up. I got to spend a lot of time in in archives in Buenos Aires, um, a little bit down in Patagonia itself, um, and just tracing these these networks whenever I could. And I think it's important um, both as a way of establishing sort of called context of the time, Um, And making clear that these are not necessarily individual isolated actors, but are actually working together, are questioning each other. They have tons of familial ties, political ties. Um, And so I think that's an important part. And I would love to be able to do the same with sort of the other side here and look at those indigenous communities and their ties. Um, But that is not something, unfortunately, that we have as many archives related to. But there are people working on sort of oral history projects, which I think are really important as well.
0: Right. And then you close your book by showing um, how these narratives have continued in one way or another way into the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, Where do you see some of these legacies being perpetrated?
1: Absolutely. So I think the most immediate um, bridge is the fact that we often think about sort of indigenous policy in Argentina and immigrant policy um, as two separate periods with no connections. But I make the argument in the book and in some of my other work that a lot of the things that they're they're practicing both in terms of scientific discourse and actual policy in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s are absolutely the precursors to what we see in the 1920s, 1930s with hygiene and genetics. but going further into the future. So if you um, walk into any of the bookstores in Buenos Aires, you'll probably find a lot of historical romance novels. It's a hugely popular genre in in Argentina Mm -hmm. and in the United States right now. Um, and there are several, uh, Florencia Bonelli is the biggest author, but Gloria Casañas, um, some of the others, that have written this historical romance set in the late 19th century, precisely in this period. And you'll see um, Sebastios appear as a villain in one of them. Um, mm-hmm. You might have um, Sarmiento in one of them, talking about what he thinks about indigenous people. And so there are these efforts to, in some ways, revisit the history and and invert a lot of it, right, in a good way, in that we're criticizing this sort of racial colonial project. Um, they criticize science explicitly. Um, and sort of bringing the, the protagonists, the romantic heroes, are often um, indigenous men or mestizos in these romance novels, right? And so sort of bringing them into the national identity, the national fold through the work of the romance novel. Um, and so we see that. But even still, if we look at those depictions, If we look at the way they play out, the ways that the the happy endings are created in those romance novels, they're absolutely based on these ideas from the 19th century. So we still see this idea of the vanishing Indian, the culture disappearing, the indigenous or mestizo male as being sort of overly sexual. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, even in romantic fiction from 2010, we absolutely see a lot of these gendered ideas um, with their roots in racial science or that influenced racial science in the late 19th century.
0: Incredible. Well, and so just one last question uh, before really closing the interview. Uh, Could I ask you what you are working on now? Do you have any new projects?
1: Yeah, um, I'm working on two projects right now. So the first is um, I'm looking at representations of indigenous peoples in Caras y Caretas, the popular magazine between 1898 and the 1920s. Um, It's really fascinating. A lot of this vanishing Indian again, a lot of glorifying Incan culture, um, a lot of Hmm. comparisons to the U.S., Reflecting on the Conquista del Desierto, so a lot of connections from what, with what I've already worked on. Um, but then I'm also working on a book on animal spectacle, so Zoo and Circus Animals in Argentina around the turn of the century. So the zoo and the circus were extraordinarily popular. The Buenos Aires Zoo was the most visited in the world in 1911. Um, and they also wrote about them constantly. So both about the zoo and circus themselves and as metaphor for understanding Argentine society. So I'm looking at how they're using these animals and these animal metaphors to talk about immigration, um, indigenous populations, modernization, feminism, class conflict, education. It's still very amorphous and uh, <laughs> what I'm doing, but there is a ton out there and I can't wait to find out more.
0: Sounds amazing. and I'm looking forward to reading your work again. Thank you. um, and yeah, once again, thank you so much for speaking with us uh, today. It was a pleasure. Um, yeah, and hope to have you here soon.
1: Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I had a great time talking to
0: you. Bye.